Welcome to Micro College. Uh, this is a special edition because this is the 50th episode of the Micro College podcast. Congratulations to anyone who's listened to to even a majority of those. Um, it's been really fun. Um, and uh, for this this uh, landmark um, edition, I'm really excited to welcome back one of our earlier guests. Um, this is Lena Rachel Anderson. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today, Lena. Well, okay. thank you for inviting me and <laughs> inviting me back. Yeah. Um, Lena is is a person I've um, been inspired by over this whole journey over the last several years. Um, she's the author of The Nordic Secret, um, which tells the story of the, the really remarkable story of Scandinavia, Denmark, and the, the Danish folk high schools, and uh, and the model of education behind that, which is, is an important inspiration for the work we do here at Thoreau College. Um, before we dig into that, I want to mention um, we, we are... Uh, recording this in the last days of 2023. Um, Thoreau College has a whole set of new and interesting programs um, that are you can apply for and find out more about for the whole of 2024, ranging from our uh, the Metamorphosis Semester, which is a semester-long program in the fall, um, and also a set of shorter programs throughout the first half of the year focused on theater and on regenerative agriculture and political philosophy. Um, so um, yeah, this is a great moment to check those out. Um, we are already receiving applicants from, from around the world. So if you're interested in, in finding out a little bit about what we're doing here in Wisconsin and spending some time digging into to, to the type of education we'll be talking about today, this is a, this is a good time to check it out. Um, so just a little plug there to begin. Um, so um, I would say, what, what a combination. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, so yes, thank you so much, Lena, for joining us. Um, Lena is a uh, is a a full member of the Club of Rome uh, and is the president and founder of Nordic Bildung and the Global Bildung Network. Um, she's an economist, an author, a futurist, a philosopher, and a Bildung activist. After studying business economy for three years, she worked as a substitute teacher, and then studied theology. And during, while doing that, she also wrote entertainment for Danish television until she decided to quit theology and become a full-time writer and focus on technological development, big history, and the future of humanity. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the reasons we're, we're talking here today is, uh, is, the, is Lena's key book, The Nordic Secret, is uh, being re uh, released in a new edition. Um, and she'll be visiting North well, America. Let me just uh, show this uh, little baby here. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a big one. It's... Um... Yeah, new edition, uh, 12 more pages and um, some old stuff that went out and some new stuff that went in. And uh, I'm very happy about it. Yeah, it's it's a really exciting development. Um, I think this the story that, that you tell in this book um, is, is really important one. Um, you know, again, as we're going into 2024 here in the United States, we're looking down the barrel of a, another election year, which is increasingly, uh, you know, difficult time uh, here. People, uh, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the state of our civil society, about the state of our culture. Um, and I think there, it's really inspiring and exciting to know uh, that there are, there are other ways to be done. And I think the story that you tell is an important piece of it. Um, I think you know, maybe before we dig into that, um, maybe you could say a bit more about how people might connect with your work um, here at the beginning so that people don't have to look for it at the end. Um, you know, the book is coming out when and how people can find it. And, but there's also a whole bunch of other ways that can connect with with Bildung and the work that you're doing. 
So the book will be out on January 30th and it will be available on Amazon. And I'm trying to figure out how bookstores in the U.S. can uh, get hold of it. So you can also buy it. Um, it's the first time that I, uh, we at Nordic Bildung are, um, I mean, we have other books on Amazon and they're in English and I wrote them. But this is the first time that we uh, try to figure out. So how to actually publish globally from Denmark and using the global channels for a book like this. And I've been an independent publisher in Denmark for 18 years. So I, I know that what it what it's like to be a publisher, but I haven't tried it globally. So this is actually very interesting. Um, but of course, the most interesting part is the book and talking about Bildung. So I won't tire you with, uh, with more publishing stuff. Um, if people are interested in Bildung, and meeting other people in the U.S. or North America, Canada, for that matter. Um, we have a, a North American Bildung Network, which has been meeting on Zoom for the past, what would that be, three and a half years. So back in March 2020, David Brooks wrote about the Nordic Secret, the book, in uh, the New York Times, and people started reaching out to me. And after I'd had a couple of Zoom meetings and drinking coffee with some very nice people, I figured, why don't I bring them together and create a, a network, because we started creating a European building network. So uh, the North American building network has survived through uh, Corona, and now is the time for me to go to the U.S. and meet with people. And on our website, globalbildung.net, uh, people can find the webpage called North American Bildung Network, and I will keep it updated with the travel dates and where we're going to meet. We don't have the details yet, but when you hear this, we may. So uh, just Google Lena Rachel Anderson, North American Bildung Network, Global Bildung Network, and you'll get there somehow. Uh, you may also share the link in the uh, in the YouTube video, I guess, or along yeah, with the podcast. We'll so. Um, so I'm going to be in Seattle, I'm going to be in San Francisco, I'm going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm going to be in Albany in uh, New York State, and thereabout. Uh, I'm also going to go into uh, New Hampshire, I'm going to go up to Vermont, and um, probably down to New York City also. But I do not have the details yet. I may have them when people hear this. So um, yeah, so that's the plan. Yeah, and we're hoping to get... Uh... Lena here to the Midwest later in the year as well. That would be yes. Um, we also talked about maybe February is not the best time to plan uh, longer trips in the northern part of the United <laughs> States. So, uh, so let's see about that. Yes, excellent. Yeah, so it's, uh, I've participated in a few of the the, the Nordic build the Nordic uh, North American building um, Zoom meetings, and there's an interesting group of people um, people engaged yes. in education and in and in the tech world and uh, just activism in general and a really interesting mix of people. So that, that's a great and very like, yeah, easy way to connect with this work on a, on a, on a global, on a continental and even a global level. So. And one other reason, so I'm glad you mentioned that because we started with the European Bildung Network because I found that here in Europe, we kind of lost our connection to the tradition or we don't have a continental debate mainly because of the language differences. When I read newspapers from Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and from the UK and Germany, people are talking about the same thing about our educational system is losing you know, a sense of purpose. It's all about testing and the PISA test, and we're losing the building part, the development part, and the uh, cultivation and all the good stuff. And we don't talk about it because we don't read each other's newspapers. So in Europe, there is one situation around building, um, and then 
in North America, there's a different situation because people are not familiar with the term. There is another term in North America called human ecology, which has many of the same elements and qualities. Um, and so there's a different background and there's a completely different situation with regards to educational system. And you also share a language. So there's not a language barrier in that respect. So um, it made sense to have a North American building network and a North American conversation and a European conversation. And then we had people joining from India and Korea. And so we created a global building network. And hopefully there will be um, a building uh, network on uh, on each continent eventually. We have a global building day twice per year on uh, March 21st and September 21st, so around Equinox, where we bring speakers in from literally around the globe and we do a tour around the globe on Zoom. So we start in Oceania with New Zealand and Australia, and then we go East Asia, Asia, Middle East, uh, Africa, Europe, Latin America, North America, and we've now done that three times. And apart from it taking 18 hours and after a full day of being on Zoom, you've got quite like square eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually it, it's amazing to meet people from around the globe and hear about we have a theme each time we've had education and AI we've had what does it mean to be human in the 21st century and it's just amazing to hear these different aspects from different cultures and different speakers um, and we've had a pure luck with the way that we've combined the speakers we ended up having two very different Australian um, couples of speakers who had never heard about each other, who both talked about how can um, open spaces, land, uh, so cityscapes, be used for education and building. And one was two women who um, created, uh, and I think they were from New Zealand actually, they created schoolyards based on Maori aesthetics and culture and indigenous plants and local flora and fauna. And they involved the local elders in designing schoolyards for public schools. And, and then there were two Australian professors who are, to, who are trying to create a, a different cityscapes. And of course, they never heard about each other before. And they met on Zoom, thanks to our Global Building Day. Yeah. Um, we also had two gentlemen from East Asia, one from Korea and one from, I forgot. They hadn't met each other for 40 years. And suddenly they were in the same Zoom meeting. And one of them was like, are you so-and-so? And the other one was like, are you? And yeah, so uh, that was just, you know, pure coincidence. I'm not sure we can repeat that, but we have some rather magical moments. So all of that can come out of a bit of building and, uh, and meeting on Zoom. But now I'm, I, uh, I'm looking very much forward to, uh, to meeting with people uh, in real life. Uh, I've done it with people here in Europe, and it's just amazing when you've gotten to know each other uh, via these meetings and discussing something as important as education and building and culture and how do we how do we maintain and rejuvenate democracy and all that stuff and then and then you just meet and hang out for some days um and uh, yeah so i'm looking very much forward to that and to meeting new new people more people yeah yeah that's uh, that i'm glad that we went to that the global scope there because that is a really fantastic you know part of you know there's an appropriate use to technology right and that is that certainly yeah. is them and um i think those those the i love that it also is timed with with the natural cycles with the equinox you know that, that that's really brilliant. yeah i really appreciate that so um, yeah i mean that that was because yes uh the day has the same length around the globe 
And uh, I've discovered a new phenomenon, which is time zone anxiety, because when you have, uh, <laughs> I don't know, 24 different speakers from around the globe and you do it around Equinox when we go in either into or out of daylight savings time and there's a northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere and the us and europe do not go on daylight savings time uh on the same dates and we don't leave it on the same date either um yes uh inviting the speakers and making the program is quite the headache but <laughs> it's a lot of fun and so far almost everybody has showed up on time congratulations and I, oh and one more and one more thing by the way because the um the uh, Global Building Day in March is going to be with um, about and with some of the speakers of a book that we're going to publish, another book we're going to publish in Nordic Bildung, which is called What It Means to Be Human, Bildung Traditions um, Around the Globe, Past, Present and Future. We're going to bring in Ubuntu uh, from uh, Africa, Human Ecology from North America, hopefully Buen Vivir from Latin America, and uh, we got somebody in China writing about uh, Confucius and um, and somebody from uh, Australia writing about Aboriginal traditions for education and upbringing and building. So, um, so, so yeah, um, we're really trying to bring people together around the globe with these different approaches to how to become a full human being. How do you? How do you become a civilized person within your culture and a responsible adult and a team player, to use a modern word? And and that's really what it's about. And it's a great pleasure. And it's always interesting people, as you said. I mean, what an interesting group of people. It really is. Um, and it's it's people who, are, who care about other people. Otherwise, there wouldn't be an education. So it's a really good group of people. Yeah. So again, that's we'll we'll, we'll um, include the link to to the Global Building Network um, in in all the related uh, postings for this podcast. But um, yeah, you can Google that Global Building Building Network. These these uh, the build, Global Building Days are easy to to sign up for and uh, and to participate in. Um, you don't have to do the whole twenty four hours like Lana does, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just have to be there, kind of. So, uh, but it's actually it's actually great fun. Um, and it is it. What has happened all the times we've done this is that over the you know the first couple of hours there's this kind of spirit building up, and as you move around the globe, it's like there's this connection that is simply in a at a different level of of uh, yeah communication and being together and. Um, and people really enjoy it. So it's, it's, um, and what we do is it's not a webinar. I mean, people join and then we send people out into breakout rooms and we got people from different time zones and different cultures uh, discussing with each other and getting to know each other. And we've had some really interesting meetings there also. So um, it is a, it really is a, a global conversation about, so what is, what is, what should education be about and what is it that we, what it means to be human? Yeah. Beautiful, great. So with that that global uh, picture there as kind of the maybe the the destination. Let's go all the way back to the to the very local there. Um, so this this um, the story that you tell in the Nordic Secret is is yeah. regional. It's it's uh, you know, it really starts in Denmark where you're from. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could you know when you talk about the Nordic Secret, what is what's what's what is uh, special, interesting, distinctive about the 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 Denmark and the other Nordic countries that that might make it worthwhile for people to to look into a little bit closer. Yeah. So 
1850, uh, Denmark and the other Nordic countries were among the poorest in Europe. Um, feudal societies, and we had free public schools for everybody in Denmark. So even the rural population got seven years of free public school from they were seven to 14. And then when you were 14, uh, you had your Christian confirmation and you were sent out to work. And usually on somebody else's farm, it was like, imagine farm labor 175 years ago. Not not a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> but um, based on this German idea of Bildung, uh, there was a pastor named Grundvig who had realized, oh, maybe it shouldn't just be for the Borscher Sea. Maybe the peasants should also understand where they're coming from, know world history and the history of their country, what it means to be a citizen, and how things are uh, evolving and, and what the world looks like outside their village. So he had the idea of um, folk college or a folk high school. And he started talking about that in the 1820s and 30s, actually, and nobody could figure out what he was talking about it was like what is this guy talking about it's like folk high school oh uh, don't isn't it enough that the bourgeoisie sons learn latin and the bourgeoisie daughters learn to play the piano and run a household what do the peasants need folk high school for um but then there was i mean there was revolutions across europe and there had been the revolution in france in 1789 and the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy and the royals were terrified at the prospect of, of revolutions. And in many places, the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy and the royals were afraid of giving too much education to the workers and the farmers, because it was like, if they know too much, they're going to make a revolution. But Grundvig's idea was, if they don't know enough, they're going to make a revolution. And that has actually been also part of the Danish uh, public school systems philosophy from when it was started in 1814 uh we can't have dumb people across the country they need to understand the world otherwise they're gonna you know do stupid things so that has been a part of the cultural fabric in denmark for and actually even before that but the, the danish public school legislation with free public school for everybody started seriously in 1814. So there'd been a couple of generations of that when we get to 1850 and we get the Danish um, constitution. So it's a constitutional uh, monarchy, which is basically a democracy with a royal head of state that just signs the laws. Um, that's where it ended up today. Um, but in the 18, in 1850, we're still dirt poor. And so um there was this Danish school teacher who there'd been a couple of experiments with these folk high schools that Grundvik had imagined and it didn't work. It was very boring. And the farmer's sons who could afford to go there were just the richest farmer's sons. And it was like a two year program and they learned new agricultural techniques and it wasn't any fun and they actually hated it. But then there was a teacher and his name was Kristen Colt and he had been teaching um, kids. And he realized that whenever he taught them, when he was supposed to teach them, they didn't pay attention. But when he told them stories, they were listening. So he figured, I should start a folk high school and start by telling stories. And so he did that in 1851. And to make a long story short, he did three brilliant things. One, and much of it inspired by Grundvig, but one was starting with stories and getting people's attention and getting their, you know, once he saw that it was like light in their eyes and connection, he started asking them questions and had a conversation with them and let them ask him questions. 
1851, that was very unusual for the average farmhand. So it was very exciting. It was like, oh, wow, I can actually have an opinion. I can, I can think for myself. And then um, the third thing was that, uh, actually, this, so that would be the first thing on the questions. And then the third thing would be there are no exams. So you go to this boarding school, actually, for five months, three or five months. And you go there because you want to be there and because you want to learn and not because you want a piece of paper saying how good you are. Because this is really about opening your mind to the world and finding an interest in the world. And you can't grade people's interest anyway. So um, this is about young people realizing that there is this amazing world. And the world that I know, the society that I'm part of, comes from somewhere. It's like there were people before me who created what I'm part of. So, um, and the more I understand that, the more I can understand my society and my own opportunities and what I can do to contribute to society. And once you have that realization and the teacher and the other students start listening to you and you can speak up for yourself and you can share your ideas and people say, hey, that, that might be a really good idea. I think you should do that. Or maybe that's not a good idea, but you could do like this then you become somebody who is paid attention to and life becomes so much more interesting and you feel empowered. So that's what they did. And then a fourth um, principle behind this was the teacher and actually one more teacher and his younger sister who was, who was doing all the cooking. Uh, they all lived in the same farmhouse except for a couple of, of uh, uh, young guys uh, who joined and they didn't have room for them. So they lived on nearby farms. But they lived together, they ate together. And back in those days, everybody ate porridge out of the same bowl. They had individual spoons, but the same bowl. Um, so they uh, the school was homey. It was not something that could intimidate the young men so they were between the age of 18 and 25. And, and by creating this kind of homey school with a lot of conversation and working together in the field and the stables with the animals, um, milking the cows and slaughtering pigs and stuff together, uh, they also learned their latest agricultural techniques. And so it's very practical, hands-on knowledge, how to drain a field, for instance. So it's very hands-on, useful knowledge, plus history, plus Bible studies, plus singing a lot of new songs. So it's like being the first one to you know, share a new YouTube video when you got back to the village. You knew the cool new songs that nobody else in the village knew. So you were, you were like, you were interesting. Um, and you'd gotten this sort of uh, self-confidence and a firm handshake and uh, somebody who knew what he was talking about later, women were there too, so they knew what they were talking about too. Um, and one of the things that they learned was how to brew better beer and make better cheese and who wouldn't want to know how to do that? <laughs> so, uh, so very cool stuff by 1851 and the 1860s and 70s. And when girls started joining the schools, one of the interesting um, side effects was that traditionally the parents had had a lot of influence, if not decis deciding influence on who should they marry. Now the young women said, hey, that's my decision. And the parents, the old generation was like, hey, what, what is this about? But the young women were like, hey, this is my life. I want to you know, decide who I'm going to marry. So cultural shift. And when we get to 1860s and the 1860s and 70s, the GDP per capita in Denmark, and uh, so we exported this to uh, Norway in the late 1860s and Sweden a couple of years later, 
uh, the, the Nordic countries, Denmark going first, go from being among the poorest countries in Europe to being among the richest. And so does Norway and Sweden. Finland was under Russian rule until 1918, I think it was. And from 1920 to uh, 1950, they make the same kind of uh, wealth class journey from the bottom of the European economy to the top. And uh, the, the Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden do it in 50 years, starting in the 1850s, 60s and onwards. And uh, that's also when we start having cooperatives. So um, the young farmers who went to these folk high schools got self-confidence. They learned how to produce better things and they learned how to negotiate and to collaborate and to learn new stuff, find new information, and they learned to self-organize. And based on that, with that knowledge, once somebody introduced the idea of a cooperative, which was actually introduced among the workers first as bread sales. But once that had been going on for, I think it's like five, six years, something like that, uh, the farmers were like, hey, we can we can produce you know, bacon and butter based on the same kind of organization. And so they did. And that's when, uh, for real, the Danish uh, economy and also the other Nordic economies started uh, blooming. So, um, so this lifting society from the bottom, taking the local farmhands and farm girls and making, giving them the opportunity it was rather expensive. It uh, ended up, and it still is, by the way, around 10% of all young people in Denmark going to one of these folk high schools. Um, but if you were you know, a young farmhand, you were saving up for a farm anyway, and your parents may have had a little bit of money, and you went there for five months where you did not make any money because you would normally have worked. But you come out, you have better farming skills, you know how to do all kinds of stuff, and your parents get. Uh, I mean, you could go back and work on your parents' farm perhaps for a year or two and actually be a much better educated uh, help. And maybe your uncle had a little bit of money and, you know, or you could just save up for two or three years and then and then go. So it was really an investment in your future. And once you have 10% um, of young people doing this, maybe... 60%, 80% of them were actually in the rural community. Uh, there were young people from the towns as well. Um, but once you have, I don't know, 5% of young people in the villages having a very different attitude toward knowledge, towards uh, the elder generations in the community, knowing what they're talking about, bringing in new knowledge from, from the outside world, and then young, other young people are like, hey, what, what's this about? I, if I can't go to one of these folk high schools, at least I can, you know, emulate or get more knowledge from somewhere so I'm not left behind in this. And so it changed the rural culture. And so that is what I think that we need to understand as citizens of the world, that you can actually, by creating a different kind of education, that is captivating and inspiring and empowering uh, among the poorest in society and allowing them to explore the world and the knowledge that is out there and in empowering them and equipping them with the knowledge that is necessary for self-organizing. You can unleash a lot of creative 
power and self-organizing within the, the poorest parts of, of the population. It's not going to be the very poorest who do it first. Mm -hmm. um, it does take some resources. And I would say uh, it does take a bourgeoisie, for lack of a better word, who's willing to, to uh, make the startup investment, who are willing to support it and who appreciate it. Um, the Danish government went in and subsidized these schools very early on, but the school leaders were very adamant about we're not going to take any kind of influence on what we teach those young people. We'll be happy to receive some government money, but you can't say anything to the curriculum. And one of the things that I have in this new edition of the book uh, is something that I didn't have when I wrote it the first time, which is that in the 1870s, there were people in the Danish parliament who were very sort of doubting whether these folk high schools were really such a good idea. And isn't this just you know, breeding ground for radical viewpoints and political radical, you know, activism and breaking down of societal structures. And what are they teaching those young farmhands? We can't have a revolution going on. So they sent, they kind of discussed, should we have somebody who can supervise those schools? And um, a couple of the schools were very clever about it. And particularly one was quick to say, yes, we would love to have somebody come and check what we're doing <laughs> on these terms. Uh, so they sort of took the first step and there were people in parliament who understood what was going on and said, hey, we like this suggestion. We'll, we uh, will hire this person to go out, travel out. And I think he was a professor or something uh, to travel and see what's happening at the schools. And at one of the schools, and I think it was actually Kristen Cold School, but it may have been one of the other ones, uh, this um, no, that was the, the, the local uh, officials from the parish who wanted to see what they were doing at the school and sort of exam the, the students. And I think it was Kristen Cole, or maybe it was one of the other ones. I was very nervous about it because now we have those, the local pastor and the local uh, <laughs> other pastors and higher up and the you know, local town council and stuff like that coming here. And so uh, I was very nervous. And they said, uh, could we make the following rule around this? You get to watch my education. You cannot have a test. You cannot test these young people because they signed up for a non-test school. So I can't put them through this. But you're most welcome to come and experience my education. And they were like, okay, we can do that. And since he was using the Socratic method anyway, it would have been sort of a an examination kind of thing because he would ask a lot of questions and so he uh he had a couple of students there and or maybe the normal class and um, started asking questions and they uh, gave such impressive answers that this local city council pastors um group uh actually uh, added them to their local budget and uh and gave them nice. a, a stipend for the next two years so it had both the personal development, uh, developing your personal character, your voice, and giving young people something to say, but they also actually gave them a lot of factual knowledge and the joy of study. Uh, you know, learning stuff and realizing things is actually a very good feeling when when you when you do it.
um, it's one of the biggest pleasures. It's funny how school manages to completely mess that up and make so many people hate school that when you talk to adults and say, hey, we all need to go back to school because the world is changing so fast. It's like, hey, school, that's the last thing I'm ever going to do again. It's really terrible. So here's, um, here's a study method. Here's a school method where people actually end up learning for, for the pleasure of learning. And, um, and that is what we've done in the Nordic countries. And that is really uh, the Nordic secret. Um, so we figured out how to do education right for young people. Unfortunately, it's still just 10%. And um, it's still rather expensive. It's heavily subsidized. But it is, I mean, it wouldn't be there without the private initiative. The schools are private, um, either owned by an association uh, for the very purpose of that, or they're established as a nonprofit or uh, but it's it's not government institutions and they're private and and anybody can start one if they have a sufficiently large group of uh, either uh, enthusiastic friend with a little money or a little group of people with a lot of money. So um, so that's hard how it's done. Yeah, there, there's so many things that are inspiring about that story, and I, I've shared it. You know, now I've read your book and 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 met with you several times now interviewed you on the podcast it is something that um there's a, a number of things that i take from it that's that's inspiring i mean that first of all that 10 percent number is that's the current number the 10 percent of it's of, there about it's somewhere between eight and ten percent maybe 11 uh and it also depends on how many kids are born and how how many schools do we have and then it comes and goes and waves i think back in the 90s we saw a lot of the folk high schools in denmark closing and then uh, we started more testing in the public school. And then after high school, normal high school, young people were so fed up with the test regime. And so they're like, hey, where can I go and just, you know, have some fun with some other young people and not waste my time, I don't know, playing computer games and drinking Coca-Cola for a gap year. Um, so so it's very popular as, as a gap year thing. Um, and, and the whole idea, and I think that is a, a cultural value that has come from this, which is that if you as a young person say, I would like to take a gap year before I go to university or college or decide what my future career should be, it's not like parents and relatives are looking at them as if they just arrived from Mars or something. They're like, oh, that's a good thing. Uh, excellent. Would you, uh, are you, are you going to go to folk high school? Are you going to work for your gap year? Are you going to go travel? What, what are your plans? And a lot of young people decide to work for a full semester, save up some money, and then go to a folk high school for, for another semester. Um, so it's still a, a, a five, the longer courses are, are five months. Uh, you can do shorter. Uh, there are schools that have a, a two-week program. You can do that in summer anyway. And then there are schools with uh, shorter, longer uh, stays, or you can just start and then Schools are not too happy about that. We can drop out. <laughs> um, so, um, so it's it's uh, still very flexible, but it's to get the full experience and to really, it's also about being included in a in a community at the school, and it's it's very it's social, and it's about uh, learning how to live among other people. And so, for a lot of young people, it's the first time they they live away from home. And so you move in and get a roommate. A lot of young Americans know that from college anyway, but um, you you eat together, you you live together, you discuss all kinds of things together. You have, I don't know, ping pong 
uh, tournaments in the evening. You have uh, you self-organize it. You self-organize discussion clubs, poetry clubs, film nights, whatever, and um, and so you build up all these relationships and and you become part of the, the local community. And one of the sort of um, general experiences that people have is that <clears throat> when they show up on the first day, everybody has. You know, they wear their best clothes and the girl wear, girls wear makeup and everybody, you know, make sure their hair is always a good, good hair day and stuff like that. And then after two weeks, they start wearing sweatpants and a T-shirt. And after a month, everybody just looks like they just, you know, got out of bed and are still wearing their pajamas. Um, so it's it, it becomes this big group of almost, you know, siblings where you feel at home. And in this homey feeling, you also have... If you don't have it when you arrive, you develop the courage to make mistakes and to say stupid things and ask what you think is a stupid question or what you think is a very wise and clever question, which turns out to be a stupid question. That is okay, because you can't learn unless you ask questions and are interested in the answer and unless you make mistakes and realize that, oops, either that was not the way to ask the question or that was a completely wrong assumption I had before I asked the question, whatever it is. Um, if you're not free to do that and make those mistakes, you're not going to learn. You're just going to sit there and hold back and not know who to ask. So so it is a, it's a very warm, embracing, tolerant uh, community. And of course, there are all kinds of social agendas. And once you have young people living together and somebody sleeps with somebody else's girlfriend and you know, all that stuff, you're going to have all those conflicts. That's part of it too. But that's also part of your building journey as a, <laughs> as a young adult. I mean, it's conflict uh, solving and, uh, you know, containing your own emotions and figuring out, so how do I get back into the community after I made a complete ass out of myself? So all this stuff, uh, it's, a, it's a safe environment for that. Yeah. Yeah. What you're describing is, is very, it's very much what we are doing here. You know, it, it is, um, I would imagine. Yeah. If we, if we could call it a, a folk high school, Thoreau college here and, and have it make sense to Americans, I would, <laughs> but if, yeah. That combination of words doesn't make sense in North America. So we're calling it a micro college, but, but really what you're describing is 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 very much what a student coming here experiences. Right. Um, and we should have called it a folk college from the beginning, but if I start writing about folk colleges, all the references will be talking about about folk high schools. Yeah. And then you'll <laughs> miss all of the other people who've been writing about this. So folk colleges, folk high schools. Uh, actually, it was the German word Hochschule that Grundvig translated into high school, folk high school in Danish. Uh, and he could just as well have called it folk college because he got the idea when he was at Trinity College in uh, Cambridge. Uh -huh. So shame on Grundvig. <laughs> Blame Grundvig. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just... Uh, you know, Wisconsin, all right, where 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 we are located here, has a very similar population to Denmark, um, and actually Denmark is is considerably smaller in area as well. But I, my understanding is that there are currently there's like about eighty folk high schools in Denmark. Or is that yeah, seventy or eighty something like that? Yes, and we're six million people, five point eight million, I think. Yeah, very similar in population. So, I mean, if I, I just think about that, and, and people who are working with the Royal College and understand what we're doing even 10%, right? 80 things like, you know, 
opportunities for young people to have an experience like this, you can really see it would it'd be totally yep. transformational to to society to have that. Right. And I mean, today it's it's middle class, upper middle class who 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 go and who can afford it. But the schools do a lot to uh, attract and include um, a different economic strata and also to get uh, young people with immigrant backgrounds to join. But here is the same challenge as the Norwegian and, and Swedish schools were facing when they imported the idea, which is when you do not get a diploma and you do not get an education that you can use for something that your parents can see leads to a good job, it's really hard to get the parents to pay for this. And it's hard for the young people to convince their parents that, hey, I should go away for five months and study and not get a diploma. And I will, uh, which is, of course, very often a challenge for, for Muslim girls. I should be staying at a boarding school with a lot of other young people. And dear dad and mom, you're not going to be there to uh, chaperone me for uh, five months. You just have to trust me that I'm still going to be, you know, your good girl when I get home. Probably won't, but I won't say that. Uh, so, so there are some cultural barriers in, um, in, in getting people from a non-Scandinavian uh, background to, to join the schools because it is so, in many ways, foreign to people to to uh, do that kind of education but of course uh, when people go there and they because i mean there are people from around the globe just as at uh, thoreau college there are people from around the globe who join these schools and, and some of the schools uh, are uh, mainly english-speaking very few of them some of them are mainly danish-speaking but have translation and a handful of, of uh, students who don't speak danish and who speak english instead but of course it makes absolutely the most sense to go to one of the schools that are international and who have a majority of, of non-Danish speaking students, because then everything is in English and you don't have to wait for translation. You don't miss all the details. Um, so, um, so I, I think, and this is also a call for the Danes to kind of wake up and, and the other Scandinavians and the Finns as well to say, what are we going to do with this heritage? Because the world needs this. Um, and so that is also why I wrote the book in English, because the world should know about this, but we should also uh, realize that we have something here that we should uh, spread to the rest of the globe. And we could actually start it in Denmark. I mean, I would be very happy to, to start, for instance, uh, not me personally, uh, because I mean, I would love to do it, actually, but then I wouldn't have time for anything else. A Palestinian folk high school, for instance, uh, an Israeli folk high school, a Roma folk high school. I would love to start a folk high school for uh, young Americans from the Virgin Islands, who uh, where they used to uh, what used to be Danish colonies. Um, and I think that would actually be a very good uh, sort of um, way to uh, to reconnect and and help those communities because I think they do need uh, educational resources and a different way of of uh, approaching education. So I would um, I, I would love to to be able to inspire others to reach out <laughs> and uh, and let's talk about how how can we do that and it can be. Um, I would suggest that we start in Denmark because here we have the teachers and the tradition and the know-how to run this kind of education. But I would also love uh, the sort of that Danish um, first uh, ground zero for that to then lead to more folk high schools in other places. I know I'm very impressed that you've uh, managed to 
start schools like this in the US. I know that there was somebody from Uganda who went to folk high school in Denmark and actually went back to Uganda, started the school, built the schoolhouse and couldn't get anybody else to understand what are we going to do here? So I think if you had, uh, I don't know, 50 to 100 young people from one country coming to Denmark, going to folk high school, starting their own culture, Danish culture and meeting with uh, Danish youth uh, with the same cultural background. And then they went back to their own country. Then there would be 50 or 100 of them who could start folk high schools there. Um, but it's such a foreign idea in many respects. I think you have to experience it before you can take it outside the country. And um, or I mean, in the US, where you already have successful schools. More people should go to your school and start more schools when they leave, uh, because we need this. I mean, it does. Even if if it's a middle class, perhaps upper middle class phenomenon, you do have people from different parts of the country, uh, different cultural, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different political opinions living together, and you realize that this person with whom I disagree about absolutely everything is actually very helpful and good at playing ping pong or you know has this amazing knowledge about the movies that i like too how do i wrap my head around this person that i would normally think is a complete either moron asshole whatever you want to call it um and and here they are really some of the kindest people that i've that i've ever met and we can talk about this sport or this kind of music for hours and so you get this experience of this person is actually worth knowing, even though they have some viewpoints that I would normally hate. Um, and that's a very important lesson to learn, particularly when you're young. Um, because when we're young, we tend to group with people who think alike and um, and behave the way that we do and who, who are similar to us. And then we get this group think, and then we have this either or thinking, which is what you do when you're young, because you're you're in the process of of uh, consolidating your own identity. But the more you can consolidate that um, among people who are like you and different from you, the better. Yeah. So that's uh, I'm glad you brought up some of these some of these examples and and also the the kind of global context for this. Um, because I obviously I'm I'm excited about this idea and and uh, and about your book and I've I've talked about it with a lot of people over the last couple of years and um and a lot of people are interested in it and and get what what it's about. Um, there's a couple of really characteristic kind of um concerns or or like maybe objections that people bring about about Denmark and about about um the Scandinavian countries as a as a model or an example for other countries and they are i would say i would summarize one they're sort of small and and really relatively homogenous especially in the time period that you're talking about they're yeah. they're white they're all protestant basically they're they're there's something that there's they're already um you know closer together than let's say many of the we call it you know countries in the in the global south right uh, or other parts of europe even um the other one would be, um, you know, you mentioned the, the the Danish Virgin Islands. You know, there is a there's also a colonial history. Um, you know, the Denmark and Sweden had small colonies. They also participated in the slave trade, and also in various ways, even after that, benefited from from the kind of imbalances in the global economy um, right down to the present day. And that, and therefore, there, you know, the argument being that this is these the the high quality of life, the sort of um, things that you start your book with talking about why, you know, why we should look at, at the Nordic countries are not really relevant or, or really a replicable model or one that you'd want to re repeat in other parts of the world. What, do you have an answer to those? 
Absolutely, because I've heard those are, you know, questions before as well. And yeah. I was aware of it when I wrote the book. And that's why I brought in the uh, GDP per capita. And I was surprised. So I had an assumption that then I knew that Sweden was extremely poor. I knew that Sweden had mass migration to the United States in the 1800s. I, I, I mean, they starved. Uh, we did not do that in Denmark because we had better soil. Um, but we still had a lot of people who, who immigrated. Uh, Norwegians also mass uh, immigrated. So, uh, so therefore, I, I wanted to go back and see, is there actually data showing how much money people had before the folk high schools and after the folk high schools? And I found two data sets. One is called Bayroch, Paul Bayroch. He made a, a GDP per capita uh, investigation in the 60s, I think. And then there's the Madison Project. And they have different numbers, but they tell the same story, which is that the between 1800 or starting in 1800 and until 1850 something, the poor countries in Europe were Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland was part of Denmark and doesn't register in those numbers. Um, and uh, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece, and Austria-Hungary. Poor, poor, poor. Then there were the rich countries, which were the UK, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, and France, which were all active in the Renaissance. They had money from that. They were big colonizers, and so was uh, Portugal um, uh, and Spain, but they industrialized. They spent the money on industry. And um, so uh, they were the rich countries. And then there was uh, Switzerland was like richer than everybody and they remained richer than everybody, which is also interesting because they had the pedagogical uh, tradition and uh, actually democratic institutions and uh, before anybody else in Europe, uh, continental Europe, at least Iceland was also kind of a democracy, but that's a complete sidetrack. Anyway, so um, among those poor countries, the only countries who made that journey from being poor to rich between 1850 and 1950 were the Nordic countries. The other countries remained relatively poor. Uh, we also got railways and we got other kinds of things, but so did Portugal. And so did, uh, I did not uh, include Russia in this, um, but the, the Nordic countries did something remarkable that Spain and Portugal did not do and Italy didn't do it either, and neither did Austria-Hungary. So, and Greece. So there's something here that I think is universal, particularly because Denmark uh, was a feudal country. It was an agricultural country. We industrialized yet uh, uh, late. And um, it was uh, actually very authoritarian. And, and so was Sweden. And it was, uh, the Swedes particularly were religious fundamentalists. There is an 1840-something uh, there religious fundamentalism in Sweden is so bad that the United States and several other uh, governments write the Swedish king, it must be, and or say, you know what, you got to loosen up a bit. You can't, you know, be this strict religiously on your own population. Um, so, and we do have a lot of countries around the globe that are poor, authoritarian, agricultural, um, and basically fuel societies where they haven't industrialized and therefore have not had that social breakout where people, young people move from the villages to the industrialized cities and where they also have not had that uh, economic development. 
So that is one reason why I think we can learn from this, or the, the major reasons. And then there's the, the small country thing. Yeah, but I mean, 115 people in a folk college or folk high school does not depend on how big or small the country is. I mean, you can do this with 340 million people in the United States. I think that's how many you are. Or you can do it with, they got like uh, 400,000 people in Iceland. Doesn't matter. It's the school that matters. And, um, and of course, uh, yes, in some respects, it's easier to do this in a homogenous country. On the other hand, it's also easier to do it in a time of access to all kinds of information because you don't, I mean, we can organize our uh, education in a completely different way. And now we have to because of AI. So we need to study differently because the what we've done with the industrialized school system is that we've focused on the transfer of knowledge and how well students can remember facts. And then we test that. We still need to remember facts, but it's not the only thing that we need to be able to do we need to learn to think we need to learn to communicate we need to learn to interact with other people we need to be able to discern when what we see on the screen is is real and true or not and we need to do that together and we need to rely on other people's expertise and access to for instance running the latest software telling us whether uh, what we're watching is a computer simulation animation or it's actually a real video. I mean, there's so much stuff that we need to approach differently in education and in our real lives as of the past year. And it's going to be even worse uh, soon. And we're facing a, a breakdown of our institutions if we can't trust what's on, on TV and uh on the screen, for instance, and it's not going to take a long time before it's going to be really hard. And we need to somehow uh, have a verification of of the sources that we're watching. So, and and we can't do this on our own, and we can't do this with the current kind of education that we have in the formal educational system. So the formal educational systems also need to change, but we also need to have that. Um, so if I'm studying medicine or to become a plumber or whatever I'm, I'm going to learn from my professional life, I need to be able to communicate with and collaborate with people who have different backgrounds. And I need to be able to collaborate with people of different cultural backgrounds. So this is more important than ever. And whereas the folk high schools, folk colleges were established in a very homogenous culture where Protestant Christianity was very much a part of it. The um, learning about and the exploration of what is my country like? What are the political institutions like? What, what are my rights? What are my opportunities? Where does my country fit into the global world? And what are the rules if I leave my country or if I have somebody immigrated to this country? We need to understand this and we can't be conscientious citizens if we don't know this if we don't or if we don't know it if we don't know where to go finding information about it so um we do need to look at education from a much more complex and rich perspective and we do need to do education differently and here what you're doing and what the folk high schools are doing um have something to offer um and i think we're really 
once again sort of ahead of the formal educational system and and people should know this and and they should uh, learn about this and from this yeah absolutely i think for me i mean the the one of the most powerful things about <clears throat> about this story and, and also what you are emphasizing in particular you know the central word uh of the movement that you are instigating is this word bildung right which is you mm -hmm. know I, I, the question of naming of these things is always a challenge. As you mentioned, Bildung doesn't mean anything in North American context. It's, so it's a German word coming out of kind of the, the heights of the you know German like philosophical and literary kind of enlightenment, Herder, Schiller, Goethe, you know, that kind of era. But right, what I've learned from you and talking to you and reading your book, you know, this the the, the central part of this word is the word built, right? Is is picture, right? And so what, what you're talking about really is a picture of the human being, also a picture of a human community. That is that's that's you're building up to this education. So can you talk a bit more about that word? What is when you use Bildung, what what do you what do you mean by it? Yeah, now we've been talking about it for almost an hour. Let's let's define what it is. Right. <laughs> um, so yes, build means image in, in German. And originally it was a pietistic uh, Christian concept. So you had to shape yourself in the image of Christ. And that was in the 1500s, and so that was a new spiritual movement, and it was very popular among the women because it was not about the official structures of the church; it was about your inner emotional spirit and emotional connection to Christ. Um, and then, with the Enlightenment, that kind of sort of disappears, and then Herder picks up the word, and other people do too in the 1770s. And makes it a secular concept where it's the image of who you are and who you who you can be. How do you become you? Uh, and you do that uh, with everything that is uniquely you, but you do it in a cultural context. So it's something that happens in a social setting. And you can have uh, building from your community and your society that is very useful and you can have a lot of building where you come from and then you travel somewhere else and it's useless so um, but hopefully you have so much building which also entails your emotional development and maturity that when you then end up in a different kind of culture you can you can pick up clues and you can um connect with other people even though you don't speak the same language even though you don't have the same references and you can um tolerate and even appreciate the differences and and this is also when people start talking about the building's eyes or the building train which uh is what you do when you're uh, a young adult and you oh, we have a stalling signal Yep, there's a little bit of a breakup there. Yeah, I'll just uh, continue with the Bildungsreise. So the Bildungsreise is when you are a young adult and you are 18, 16, 18, 25 or so, and you leave home, go out, stay somewhere for a while, and you pick up the social norms and the culture there because you want to fit in and you want to have food every day. Um, so um, you live there, you work there, you study there, whatever it is you do. Um, and then you go back and then you realize that you have changed. And the ways of the culture that you came from actually 
aren't that universal as you thought they were. And you can see them from a different perspective because you just spent time somewhere else. So this idea of going out, learning something completely different, embedding yourself in a different culture, and then coming back and realizing that uh, you can now see the culture for what it is, or at least more of what it is, rather than just thinking that this is the way the world is, has changed something inside you. And so that's a building journey. That is uh, an emotional development, a cultural development that goes on inside you. And when you come back and then the longer you've been away, the more that you've changed, particularly, and, and I, I know a lot of people who come from small villages or come from uh, more traditional societies to the bigger cities, to the more industrialized modern societies, postmodern even, when they return to their place of origin, it is extremely hard for them to get people to understand what they're talking about, what it is they've experienced. Um, because the more complex, modern, postmodern, bigger societies can better uh, embrace and embed into them uh, the, the traditional and smaller societies, norms and ways of being. But everything that you've learned in this bigger place, when you take that into the more traditional village, it's almost like it's, it's wrecking things apart. Um, so... Uh, so that kind of Bildungsreise, that Bildung journey, can really have uh, dire consequences. And you have to deal with that because you still have to fit in where you came from or you have to leave for good and you probably don't want to do that. Um, so I, I know, I mean, this is a typical immigrant story as well. So, but here it becomes part of your personal building, your personal journey. Um, but you can also do this with a uh, stay at a folk high school uh, or at a Thoreau College or something like that. Um, or going away for, for a normal college and then go back and, and you realize, oh my God, I, I just, you know, I changed. The, the place I came from didn't, but I changed. So building is, is that. Um, the way that I've come to describe building now is that it's two kinds of knowledge. It's the uh, relatively easily transferable kind of knowledge and it's the academic knowledge, but it can also be practical knowledge. So science, math, uh, geography, that stuff, or how to cook, or I don't know, fix a bicycle or something like that. And you can test whether the transfer has taken place or not. And you can see if people can answer your questions, take a test or fix the bicycle, whatever. Um, and you can expand your horizon in all kinds of directions with this. So once you're done with learning one thing, you can learn another one and you can do it in a completely different language, for instance. So you can, you can continue to expand your horizon with this kind of, of knowledge. But then there's a different kind of knowledge that you cannot transfer. And that is the life experience it's the emotional learning it's your emotional depth it's your connection to your cultural heritage and the more cultural heritage you grow up with and you're exposed to and that you're that becomes part of you the richer and deeper your inner life is but it's also your upbringing and we have this literally upbringing uh image in the english language and in, in german it's erziehung it's like pulling up and in Danish, it's also um, pulling up, up, Drawelse. So, um, and that is where we expect you as a child, but also as an adult, to behave in a certain way. And if you don't, we tell you that this is not how we sit at the dinner table. This is not how you talk to grandma. I mean, it's all these things that socialize you into um, becoming part of the tribe. And then your upbringing 
uh, when you take that with you out into the world, some of the things that are good behavior at home are suddenly really, really uh, awful things to do in a different kind of culture. And now we have a generational thing where uh, what is polite and um, a good sense of humor in one generation is a, a, a microaggression in another uh, generation. And we've brought up people differently in different generations to to have different norms about what is good behavior but it's all upbringing so um and that vertical development and rich life is also part of your building and you can't transfer this you can do that to some extent with literature and storytelling and that's why storytelling is so important because you can get to identify with and kind of experience the emotions of fictitious characters or real characters if you hear their life story or participate in their story and so we can stretch and train our emotional muscle through storytelling um and more so from reading literature or hearing stories than from movies because in movies somebody created all the images for you they right. even added music to tell you how to feel you don't have to generate it yourself it's just you know entered into your mind through your senses whereas if you read a story or somebody tells a story you have to create the images in your mind it's it's harder process and so it's a much stronger process and then the emotions that come with it you have to generate those yourself as well so so we need these stories and and that becomes part of our building and and the combination of the this horizontal uh kind of knowledge that is easy to transfer and the emotional experiences and your emotional depth and upbringing the combination and the struggle that you may have to bring them together or to relate them to each other that is your building um and on the one hand it's very personal because only you have your emotions and your talents your interests your skills um but it's always also very social because I mean, you can go back home, think about it, read a book on your own. But most of this comes from social interaction and trying to fit in and becoming a good friend, knowing how to uh, behave around other people and being included in, in the social settings that are there. So, um, and so that is how you become rounded and deeper on the inside. And, and that is your building. So... And, and that takes place in all civilizations and in all cultures. And even in the smallest, oldest hunter-gatherer tribes, there is this kind of development. And you have the elders who look at the kids and say, what are you going to do about this You know, girl? She's going to get into trouble. Or this guy, he's going to get into trouble. Uh, how do we, how do we you know, socialize them into the norms of this tribe so that we can be safe around having this guy with us in the hunting you know, trip, uh, or how do we make sure that the this is somebody that uh, that will a set of parents will accept as a spouse for their child? So we've done this for as long as we've been humans. It's it's not something that Germans invented; they just came up with a word for it <laughs> uh, at a certain period in time where the Enlightenment was making everything very you know rational and cerebral and people like yeah there's probably something more to life than just you know newton's physics right. we need to feel that we belong we need to feel that we're part of community and so they also came up with uh, romanticism and um uh romantic nationalism and how do we how do we relate to other people and and 
feel like a people, which is also part of this. How do you how do you feel a sense of belonging in the society where you have political you know influence? Who am I? Also, who are who are we? Right. That's a exactly yes. Um, and and who and how do I contribute to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's powerful. I mean, I think um, you know as a as a you know a young experimental kind of a new form of uh, education as we're trying to to you know develop here you know we're thinking about what we're doing and what what our picture of a human being is in the form of education um but i think you know what you're saying is is a great reminder that all forms of education at base have a picture of the human being right and you know usually it's unconscious right and much of mainstream education and preferably it's unconscious because if you start you know saying oh this is the picture uh you gotta you gotta be like a square in this direction a little bit round and green in this direction then we would like it to be sort of a triangular up here and then yellow there i mean that would not work uh and so actually one other thing that is new in, in the nordic secret is that so we started this think tank called nordic bildung uh, in 2018 and uh, that's where we're now publishing the book and um and i call it a think tank it really isn't it's more of a, a building lab um but we also do futurism and and think so anyway um and as people started reading the nordic secret outside of scandinavia um they started talking about nordic building as the way that we do building in the nordics and I'm like, no, 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 there's nothing called Nordic Building. It's just the name of our organization. But they still kept talking about it. So I, I realized that maybe there is something called Nordic Building. So capital N, uh, lowercase b, is the Nordic approach to pedagogics. And Nordic Building, with a capital N, capital B, is the organization where I have my office. And um, the Nordic Building as a pedagogical tradition is exactly the opposite of any testing regime or any kind of piece of test or goal-directed learning, which is that you, who are you? And what do you bring into this situation, this classroom, this you know, teaching experience? And you may not even know that. You probably don't. Um, so we, as the educators, are going to create a community together with you and all the others who are studying together and find out what is it? Who who are you? And that is really the the big question in any education. And we've been very good at that in the Nordic school systems, and we've become very poor at it. Um, and I would like us to rediscover that. And would I would like school systems around the globe to realize that education is about who are you, um, and how can we as educators school systems, uh, teachers um, give you the challenges, the pushbacks, the new experiences that you would otherwise not have had in order to find out. And in that process, you will learn math. Of course you will, uh, because we need to find out, you need to find out if that is something that you can you know, use fully. And we need to make sure that as a citizen, you can do math when you leave the school system, but what you're going to do with it um that's that's your journey that's your bildungsreise that's your bildung journey and when we meet you in the school system particularly in the in the folk high schools of course but really also in the public schools um 
we need to find out who are you and we need to give you the challenges and the pushbacks that allow you to unfold as only you can unfold and that means that if i mean if if we do that if, if schools do that you also have students who are interested in learning because then i mean of course as I said, I mean, everybody has to learn math. Everybody needs to learn to read and write. Everybody needs to know some basic facts and know physics. I mean, there's things that we we can't have citizens who don't know this. And when we do, there can't be too many of them because we really rely on an enlightened, uh, informed uh, population. Um, but not everybody can learn everything and that's okay. But you need to find out and we need to find out the best way for you to learn as much of it as possible. And um and we need to build our school systems around that and that is nordic building with a capital n and a lowercase b um and we've been really good at that and we've had a language for it and we've um educated teachers for it and unfortunately i mean i'm it's not been idyllic it's not like we were perfect at it but it used to be the attitude um and we're unfortunately kind of forgetting about that so we need to uh, rediscover that and we need it around the globe yes Amen. Yeah, I think that maybe we're up at the end of the hour here, I think. And um, so I just want to I want to thank you so much for your for your work. And it's very exciting that this there's an updated and new version of, of this important book that's coming out and people should definitely check it out. And um, and hopefully people here in North America also get to meet you in person sometime in this. Yes, time. looking very much forward to it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Lena. Well, thank you. <laughs>